says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord." in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship of you by opening the word of God and just looking for you as God to speak to our hearts as your creatures, that which we need to hear in this day and hour of our life. So, Lord, prepare us. You know what that means for each one of us. We ask you to bless your word and speak to us by your Spirit's ministry. And we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, whether human beings recognize it or not or admit it, everybody is searching for answers. Everybody is searching for solutions, and I can tell you this, what everybody is trying to find can only be found in God himself. You may be looking, perhaps you've spent a lot of time in your life searching. Let me tell you this morning, to simplify it for you, God is the solution. The thing that you're looking for, the person that you're looking for, whatever it is within you that you're driving after to experience, I can tell you what your inward being is longing for is an experience with God. And that's really what our passage this morning is demonstrating to us as Paul continues his ministry here now in Athens. Remember the backdrop after a time of ministering in the area of Berea. Once again, Paul's enemies, the enemies of the gospel, chased him down. They came there to that town where he was ministering, started a riot in the city. It became dangerous. And once again, Paul, after a time of ministry, was forced out of an area, needed to move to a new location. And for safety's sake, it says the believers sent Paul away 
but Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. It seems continuing to minister for a time. And Paul was transported by way of sea to the area of Athens, a journey of about 250 miles or so. And he then from there in Athens sent for Silas and Timothy to join him. But the journey from Berea to Athens, considering that it was quite a distance, was going to take some time. Well, that's where we come to now in verse 16 this morning. If you draw your attention with me to our text, it says, while Paul, verse 16, waited for them, Silas and Timothy, there at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So as Paul is in Athens, he's kind of in a holding pattern, if you would, waiting there. And he's just surveying the moral and spiritual condition of the city as he has some time on his hands. And it says that he becomes very burdened within while he's waiting there in Athens. Now, Athens, we know, particularly ancient Athens, among the Greek culture was the center of education it was the center of thought and philosophy among the Greek world. It was kind of like, we might say, an ancient university town with all the Ivy League schools and libraries and great thinkers. It was the epicenter of all the famous thinkers and renowned philosophers, famous Greek poets and artists and so forth. Uh, it was the home of men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle these different types of individuals, very well known for these things. It was the birthplace of really Greek culture and philosophy. But more than that, we also see here that it was a city of tremendous religious zeal, a place of uh, devoted worship to all types of different deities and gods and idols as people sought answers from different avenues in this great philosophical town of thought, looking for different ideas and thoughts and philosophies for life. That, of course, led to the worship of many different things as well. We see at the end of verse 16 there, look at it in the text, it says that Paul was provoked when he saw particularly that the city, it says, was given over to idols. So as Paul observed the city of Athens, he noticed that these people had fully given themselves over to unrestrained idol worship, to all types of different gods that they had created. Ancient Athens was filled with statues to idols, with monuments to different deities, images of various gods, altars and temples to deities. Everywhere you turned, there was an idol. There was a statue, there was a temple, there was an altar. It's estimated that they worshipped at this time upwards to about 30,000 different gods. It gives you an idea of what it was like there. Uh, so if you had a desire or need for protection, you would offer at the uh, altar to the god Hermes. If you needed power or you wanted success or strength, you would offer at the altar of Zeus. If you were into sexual fulfillment and satisfying your lustful cravings, you could go through the practices and rites of the worship of Aphrodite. And basically, quite honestly, they had a God for virtually everything. Whatever you desired, whatever your particular bent was, whatever you needed, you just created a God and then you could pursue it. 
So there was a lot of humanism. There was a lot of worshiping, even of the human nature, because basically whatever you were into, whether it was alcohol or intellectualism or whatever your desire or thing was, they fashioned a God that you could then worship and go through practices to indulge that very thing. So here is Paul. He sees this city given over to idols and right at the center of it if you know your history a little bit at the center of all that was elevated a place called the acropolis a a high rocky plateau sort of in the center of all that where the crowning building was you may remember from some of your history classes what was called the parthenon which was basically considered to be the temple area of the goddess athena from which the city athens gets its name and athena was considered to be sort of the guardian patron over the city where all these different gods and idols were being worshipped at. And as Paul surveyed the city, seeing its condition given over to idols, verse 16 tells us that his spirit, his inward person, was provoked within him when he saw how the city was given over to idols. That word provoked that's used there speaks of how Paul was stirred with concern, and the language almost indicates even a sense of anger or agitation within That is, as Paul looked around and he saw all of these idols and the idolatry, understanding that this was ultimately just the devil's misguidance to get people to worship everything other than the one true almighty God himself. And so as Paul saw all of this idolatry, each time he saw another temple, every time he saw another statue, every time he recognized this is another God that's being worshipped here, he was provoked with inside. It bothered him within, and so he was stirred and and kind of upset within himself when he saw people devoted to so many empty things. When he saw people worshiping and giving their allegiance and serving wholeheartedly all these wrong things in their idolatry. And look, though our modern world and modern culture, I understand, may not have tons of statues and altars and temples all over the place in society, we are just as much given over to idolatry in our own nation as they were there in Athens. Remember, idolatry is really just the worship or devotion to anything other than God himself. That's what idolatry is. An idol is anything that is the master passion or main devotion of a person's life instead of the one true almighty God himself. That's what idolatry is. And so as you look around our culture, much of our modern world is given over to idolatry in many, many different forms. Whether it's people who, you know, idolize themselves or idolize the way they look or, you know, they have idols of this pursuit or that habit or some pleasure or entertainment or substance or, again, their career or their intellect or whatever it may be. Idolatry can come in so many different forms. And we are created to worship, and so we're going to worship something. Everybody worships something. And to what degree we don't worship the one true God as our master passion and submit ourselves to the lordship and allegiance of Jesus Christ himself, we're going to have idols in our lives. Everyone will fall prey to idolatry. And so everyone who doesn't know Jesus in some way becomes consumed in this. And as this is happening around us and we see idolatry running rampant in our own culture, I have to ask myself, you need to ask yourself, does it actually bother us? 
Or have we become almost sort of so accustomed to it that we sort of become indifferent and apathetic? As we look at people consumed in idolatry in America and idolizing all these other things, does it actually provoke us within? Does it stir us anymore? Does it agitate us? Does it bother us that the devil was misguiding so many people? Or we just sort of accept, well, that's just kind of how things are. It's just kind of everybody's into their thing. And, and does it just kind of become something that we become indifferent to? Honestly, our love for the Lord and our desire to see him honored and our concern for people she should cause us to be provoked to some degree, to be stirred, to be saddened by the state of people we see around us in our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhood who are caught up in worshiping all these other things. Well, in light of Paul seeing the city given to idolatry, verse 17 tells us, that therefore, in light of this, he reasoned in the synagogues, it says, with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and also in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So take note, as a burden came upon Paul's heart for what he saw in his society, it tells us that he could not be passive. When Paul surveyed his city, when he took notice of the conditions around him with people, his concern for the spiritual condition of people prompted him to do something to engage in ministry activity. He took active, intentional efforts to try and reason with people spiritually, to try and show people some light in the midst of the darkness to try and reveal to people what they were missing. It says there in verse 17, look at it, it says, he reasoned with the people, both in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace, to give people a reasonable understanding of spiritual matters. That's that same term we saw last week in our study, reason there. It's actually the term in the original language, which means to dialogue. The idea is to have sort of conversational communication. It doesn't mean necessarily to get up on a soapbox and preach and indict and tell people how horrible and foolish they are as idolaters and make them feel miserable. It indicates just reasoning with people, dialoguing, communicating in a way where people feel like, hey, this is an, an open conversation here and, and, and I can ask questions and you actually have answers for me. And, and, and we can reason this out and I can think through this in a reasonable way. Paul wanted to give reasonable explanations to help people understand how reasonable it was to serve Jesus. How reasonable it was that we actually are all sinful and that we have some need of forgiveness in our life, that there is an eternity after this life. And so Paul sought to reason with people about spiritual things. He did it both formally and informally. Formally, as we've seen many times in the book of Acts, he went into the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentile worshipers there, and he took opportunity as a visiting rabbi, knowing that he'd be given occasion to speak typically from the scriptures, and they had a basic Old Testament basis. So Paul would try and reason with them and show them how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the prophecies and the pictures in the Old Testament, and how he indeed was the Christ to help people who were already seeking God to better understand with clarity what they needed to see. But more than that, Paul also, in sort of an informal way, you could say he did outreach by taking the gospel and the word of God and spiritual truth to the streets, 
Do you see what it says at the end of verse 17? It says, he also went and reasoned in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. The marketplace, again, was where the vendors and the traders would be, where people would go. And typically in that culture, daily to sort of buy goods and products, to buy fresh food, to eat and partake of their meals, usually on a daily basis. So the marketplace was where society interacted socially. It was, if you would, like the food court. It was the mall. It was the place where people went and, and the public square where people typically were gathering. And it says Paul went there, look at verse 17, it says he went there daily to try to enter into conversations with people who were present there that particular day. Every day, it seems Paul would go out and position himself in the marketplace and just spend some time there to engage with the people who happened to be present that day, kind of searching, if you would, for those divine appointments, believing that God actually has a heart to want to reach people and that God wants to use human beings to share with other human beings the truths of God. And so therefore, Paul would go there and he would kind of just, it seems, position himself and he would just look to dialogue with people. He'd look to have conversations with people and and just talk with them, but to do it intentionally, to then have a conversation and then be intentional and try and turn the conversation towards spiritual things and actually something meaningful to be the one in the midst of conversating, to maybe ask a leading question or just to probe about the things of God and to lead a conversation towards spiritual matters in a very simple way of just loving, friendly dialogue, reasoning with people. I look at this example of Paul here and I think, wow, how incredibly practical and how spiritually bold and shows you his motivation to actually want to share Christ, actively taking the gospel to the neighborhoods, to the streets, if you would, going to his local marketplace, the public square. And I think, boy, what a great model in the book of Acts for you and I today as Christians in this generation. Whatever our marketplace may be, whatever our neighborhood scenario may be, whatever the streets may be, kind of going out among where lost people are and whoever happens to be there, just trying to talk to people instead of texting people. Boy, in this culture, it's almost kind of novel. Like, what's this strange thing? You want to talk to me? You want to have a conversation? You don't want to walk around like this and almost get hit by a car? You want to talk to me for a few minutes? And again, to just seek to have conversations, but listen, not just to socialize, nothing wrong with socializing, but actually as a Christian, recognizing when I have a conversation, I am a divine ambassador. I'm to be the light of the world from Jesus and I'm commanded to seek to look for opportunities to preach the gospel. And that doesn't mean I need a platform or a stage, or, but that I, I just proclaim the gospel wherever I go. That we look for opportunities to turn conversations towards spiritual dialogue, pursue opportunities to reason with people about what the Bible says, to ask a question, to try and bring up the things of the Lord. It's amazing how God can honor that if we're open to it at times. And look, folks, as I said at the beginning, people are always searching. One thing I can tell you with everybody everywhere you encounter in this world, everybody's searching. And here's the second thing I can tell you. You actually have the answer they're looking for. 
you have the one thing everybody is looking for. God, Jesus, the word of God, which is truth. So you have the answer to everyone's question. You know, God help us. Convicting to me this week, reading this, even how Paul would go out and take these opportunities. Well, verse 18 says, well, as he was doing this, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, it says, encountered him there in Athens. So as Paul goes out and he's doing this, two major philosophical groups of thought in that day, philosophers, which are just lovers of wisdom, those who look for a way of life and think through how things should be, encounter Paul. And two of the main philosophical groups of the day are mentioned here in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicurean philosophers were basically those who held the way of thought that the highest goal was to indulge everything you could in material life. They were those, their way of thought, believed that feeling and sensation and desire were everything, and that's how your life should be driven. In other words, they felt like there was no sense of moral accountability to any deed at the end of life, so you should live life according to your drives and your pleasures and your passions, and that's what dictates how life is to be lived. So their motto was basically, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we might die. So therefore, whatever you desire, whatever you're into, indulge yourself, any passion or craving. And they felt if you desired it, that means you need it. So if you have a desire for it, that means that your body says that you need it. And therefore, that also means you are entitled to indulge it. And this was the way the Epicurean philosophy flowed. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, kind of the other end of the spectrum, their way of thought was the highest goal was to live in a state of indifference to everything they believe that life should be lived by nothing other than logic and reason be practical be logical ignore all emotion reject all sensation or passion any of that is wrong or evil you just endure life let nothing and no one bother you accept things the way that they are just go through things don't engage whatever happens let it be and just disregard your emotions live like a cold, stone-hearted individual, do what you got to do to get through this world. And they basically showed no emotion whatsoever. Everything was just be practical, be logical and reasonable. And now when they encountered Paul, notice what happens, verse 18, it says, they encountered him and some began to say to Paul, these philosophers, I imagine it sounded something like, what does this babbler, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. I mean, you just kind of sense the, again, the high-minded, very intellectual philosophers. But notice what Paul was preaching to them, verse 18 says, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. All these philosophies of life that exist out there, they still exist today, right? Do you see what Paul's philosophy was? Paul's philosophy was everything, the lens of how we should reason life for life. Here's Paul's lens of reasoning for life consider Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he offers to us. Paul says proclaimed and spoke to people about Jesus, not church. Paul didn't go to the marketplace and say, I got to tell you about my church. I mean, you should see what we do on a Sunday morning. I mean, Paul didn't talk about his church. He talked about Jesus. Paul didn't talk about moral codes and what he talked to people about 
Jesus. He particularly emphasized that Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection. That is that Jesus accomplished something. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead to overcome the power of sin and death. And that means that Jesus is alive and he offers a living personal relationship. He wants to give of his life to you and give of his power to you if you'll embrace him. And it also meant Jesus is alive and he's the savior. And so therefore, one day you're gonna answer to him because he's alive and he's gonna hold you to account. And so Paul would share these things to these individuals, these philosophers and the common people in the marketplace. And notice, because of their high state of intellectualism, they kind of drifted into a state of almost intellectual arrogance. And so because of that, they were kind of spiritually blinded. That's why here in verse 18, you could tell some were trying to just dismiss Paul and, and question him. Some were saying of him, what does this babbler want to say? Just trying to dismiss him. The word babbler literally there means seed picker. And it was a common slur in that day. The indication of a seed picker is how a bird would go around and pick up bits of seed was that people who weren't smart, deep thinkers, that's what they did. They were like seed pickers of thought. They would go around, they'd, they'd pick up a little bit of this guy's thoughts and a little bit of that guy's ideas and they'd steal from all of us smart guys and they'd try and come up with their own philosophy because they're not smart enough like us deep philosophical brains. And so that's what they're at. Paul, you're just a seed picker, man. What, what, what? And so they're insulting Paul. Others said of Paul, he appears to be proclaiming a foreign God. What is this guy trying to announce a new God? Doesn't he know this is Athens? We know God's better than anybody. We've got 30,000 of our own gods. Who is he coming here trying to bring a new God to us? And sadly, look, isn't it true? Sometimes the greatest thinkers struggle the most with hearing and seeing spiritual truth. Sometimes the people who are the smartest and most intellectual, brilliant, educated people can be the absolute most difficult individuals to reason out simple spiritual truths with because they overthink everything. Their intelligence actually becomes an obstacle for them, a stumbling block because they overthink things so much and their idolatry of education and their own mind. Oftentimes, look, the worship of the mind can blind the heart. And we need to pray for people like that. And we need to find ways to reach them with reason and logic, but it's very sad when somebody thinks they're too smart for God. Romans chapter 1 says that those who profess themselves to be wise can, from God's perspective, actually become fools spiritually because they miss the simple claims of the scriptures and the word of God. And sadly, in response to Paul's preaching, you'll see at the end of the chapter, most of these deeply intellectual people, they mocked and they just dismissed Paul. And they didn't really want to hear what he had to say. But yet their intelligentsia does make them a bit curious, so they're going to give Paul a platform. Look what happens, verse 19. It says, they then took Paul, brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, also called Mars Hill, to, to the god Mars, the, to where the temple was for that. But the Areopagus, more than that, that was the place where all of the great thinkers and philosophers would assemble for their council meetings. So this is sort of the, the spot, the Areopagus, where they would go to, they'd assemble and they'd share ideas and their deep thoughts and they would you know, give their different insights about things and it was where all the great thinkers gathered and now they bring Paul there and they give Paul stage to see what he might want to say 
It says, verse 19, they bring him to the Areopagus and say, may we know what this new doctrine or teaching is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things, they say, to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. So they say, we'd like to know, what is this new teaching you're trying to bring about? What is this new idea you're trying to introduce, this Jesus and a resurrection and a savior? To them, interesting, it sounded strange, foreign. Some man is back from the dead and and it sounded peculiar to them. They had never heard anything like it. So they say, what does this mean? We want to know what these things mean. Well, therefore, verse 21 says, for all the Athenians and foreigners who were there, notice, spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. So take notice, here the Holy Spirit gives to us why, the the reasoning, why they actually were so curious to understand what Paul was saying, even though they called him a babbler, a seed picker, you know, just, they didn't seem to have any real reverence or respect, but they were still so curious What is this strange thing you're trying to tell us about? And verse 21 tells us the reason why they were so curious because the Athenian people were characterized and known for something. Do you see what it is there in verse 21? It says, those who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were a people who were characterized by spending their time always trying to pursue more information. They were addicted to new ideas. They loved understanding new things. They were obsessed with knowledge on matters, driven to learn, get more facts, greater amounts of information. They always wanted to hear some new insight, some new idea, learn some new concept. Could you imagine these people today with access to television? Google, whoa, the internet, social media, who updated their what? You know, just, oh, he's got to get something new. What's the latest thing? What's the newest thing? They were obsessed. They were news junkies, if you were. They had a craving for novelty more than that because notice, they, they didn't want to just get information. They always wanted to hear, verse 21 says, some new thing. They had a craving for novelty. They always wanted to discover the newest idea the newest insight obsessed with spending time what's the way everybody's thinking now what's the current trend of thought out there is there some new perspective that's been developed has somebody got a new agenda a new policy what's the newest perspective this is what the people were characterized by and again folks today there are many people living like the athenians characterized by the exact same things the same drive there are people who are literally addicted to acquiring information they make steam come out of google's drive engine right gotta learn something new new insight new idea i need more information i need and just constantly always got to learn everything about everything and they're just addicted to information and learning and news and, and, and acquiring, understanding what's going on. And they're always searching as well. Many are always searching to find what's the newest thing, as I said. I mean, I don't do social media, but those who do social media, it shocks me how addicting social media can become for people. I'm not saying anything wrong with it. But the obsession with kind of the same thing, they hear some new thing. Who's on vacation Where? You know, my, my family does social media, so I hear all the time. Guess who's in such and such a place? 
I don't care where they're at. Quite frankly, all that does is make me miserable. Why am I not on vacation in Cancun? I mean, we live in a generation where my personal conviction, and again, this is conviction alone, we know way too much about everybody's business. There was a day when I didn't know who was where and what they were doing and what they had on that day or what they were eating for lunch or what they were drinking at Star. I just, I don't care. I mean, I do about you, but not what you're doing, right? When you have a problem, you come tell me what's going on anyway. But we, we live in a generation where people are so concerned, always got to know the newest thing, what's going on. And it literally can become like an obsession with people. And I always wonder, is that ultimately, honestly, that healthy? Because typically then, we then do one of two things. I said, we either then criticize what we're always discovering about everybody, and so then we make critical, oh, can you believe they're there? They're on vacation again, or they're doing this, or look what they're... So we either criticize people, or, as I said, it just makes, makes us, oh, man, my life's horrible. I'm not there. I'm not drinking one of those at three in the afternoon. I'm, it, it just it has such an effect upon us. And we live in a generation much like the Athenians where many people are spending their time just like these people, just looking for some new idea, spending time in just empty pursuits, folks. Our American culture is dominated by people always pursuing and so often pursuing so many empty things. We are a society of always searching and never finding. It's always the next relationship, the next person, the next job, the next... And we're always searching, always looking for the next new thing. Look, let me encourage you this morning. Keep yourself in check. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit. Do you struggle with the temptation to always be pursuing, you see those three words, some new thing. Always pursuing some new thing that will rob us of contentment and often keep us occupied in many empty and worthless things. Well, verse 22 says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, given this platform, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found, he said, an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So notice what Paul does. They give him a platform to speak at the Areopagus because they heard him speak about Jesus and the resurrection. And Paul now begins to communicate. And do you notice what he does? He wisely builds a bridge to earn the opportunity to actually be heard by these people who've given him the freedom to speak to them. To me, Paul shows great wisdom here. Rather than insult or offend them, he takes note of and he acknowledges where they're at in their journey spiritually he pays attention to what's going on in their culture, shows that he was attentive. It demonstrates he cared about themselves, cared about their lives, and he actually was interested in them as people and not just interested in just proclaiming or proselytizing. He actually shows he cares about people. And look, you ever heard the adage before, right? Oftentimes people don't care what you know till they know how much you care. And so Paul actually demonstrates that he paid attention, that he understood their situation. And, and again, he almost is sort of commending them for what they had done so far. He says in verse 22 there, at the end of it, he says, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Paul says, I can tell that, that you're very interested in worship here in Athens. 
I can see that you desire to be a very religious people. He almost commends them and honors their efforts to try. He says it's evident that, that you're seeking after what's spiritual. I can tell you're searching, Paul says. I can see you have a hunger to want to understand and to grasp spiritual things. He says, while I was observing all your objects of worship, verse 23, he says, I even found one altar that you had out there that had an inscription on it. He said, that altar said to the unknown God. That is, any God that we may have the ideas overlooked. That is, if there is another deity wanting to be so religious and worship anything and willing to do that, just in case they forgot a particular God, just in case they hadn't heard about a particular God yet, just in case somebody hadn't created a particular God yet, they wanted to reverently make sure they honored that deity, so they sort of had a catch-all. The altar to the unknown God. Or just in case, among the 30,000, you still did not find one that you liked, there you go. There's the altar to the unknown God. Go to that one. Now, interesting here, Paul takes note of this, and verse 23, he says, Therefore, notice, the one whom you worship without knowing, him, he says, I proclaim to you. Notice Paul avoids the temptation to condemn their current idolatry in order to connect with them to convey the truth to them. That's what he does here. He does not indict them for their error or insult them for their ignorance. Think of all the things Paul could have said at this moment, and he didn't say. He didn't start out with, you are the most idolatrous people I've ever met in all the European area. He is, I mean, how foolish, an unknown God? I mean, I mean, all the things he could have said to indict them for their error, he refrains from. Instead, he connects with them right where they're at at that point and builds a bridge. He says, the one whom you're worshiping without knowing, I'd like to tell you who he is. I know who that is, who you're really looking for. And Paul here, in wisdom, takes time to see where they're at in their journey and help guide them forward more clearly to the destination that they need to get to. And out of love and compassion, using wisdom, he seeks to explain what they haven't learned yet. Look, let's remember this, folks, and be careful when we talk to people spiritually not to, to gravitate towards just indicting people, not to gravitate towards starting out by insulting people, but to find out where people are at and build a bridge from there. You can speak the truth. You can get to the things. People, you, people already know stuff that they're doing wrong. They're, they have a conscience. God wired that in them. But find out where they're at. Look for a way to build the bridge from where they are and take them to where they need to be in their understanding. Paul says, the one you're trying to worship, he wants to be known. And so Paul says, I'm going to tell you who he is because I want you to know him. I want you to know who he is, he says. It's crucial that you know him. And he's going to proclaim to them the one true and living God. But remember, these people in Athens, they have no Bible background. They haven't had a basis in the Old Testament scriptures or an upbringing in church. So Paul pays attention to where they're at and he realizes, I need to start with general revelation because these people don't have a whole lot of basis. So he says, the one whom you don't know, I want to proclaim him to you. Verse 24, this is who he is, Paul says, God, who made the world and everything in it since he's Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not dwell in temples made with hands. So everything that exists in nature and has been designed, Paul says, it's been brought into existence 
by God. Not by a God or gods, but by God who purposely as the God of creation with his power made the world and everything in it for his purposes, creation itself, all of its order, all of its complexity, the beautiful design, it reveals aspects of God. The psalmist tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. Romans chapter 1, Paul there says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that people are without excuse. Again, general revelation, even creation itself, the complexity, the order of that which exists in the earth, the systems, all of these things, the design, the complexity, it speaks of a designer. You can't look at it being reasonable and not realize how could all that complex design and order exist unless there's a designer behind it, a programmer, someone who set it into order with the complexity that it has. And well, if God made everything and all that's in the world, that also means that he made everyone. And this is the point Paul's getting to. God made everything that exists. And Paul says, therefore, you and I have a creator, he's trying to tell them. We have a creator who designed us, who made us exactly who we are in our, again, the complexity of the human body. And Paul wants them to understand, like Psalm 139 says, that you dwell on this earth because God made you and put you on the earth. And it's not some weak God that dwells in one of these temples that people are making by their hands. It's a God that fashioned you with his own hands. And he made you exactly the way you are that you have value and purpose, unique and specific reason for your existence, that as a human being, you're not an accident. You're not a manufacturer's defect. You exist by God's purposeful design. You exist because God created you specifically and he loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for you. From the moment that you were conceived, he knew about your life. But that also means this. You owe your life to God because God created you. And he says, so God is our creator. And he's also the one who's the Lord of heaven and earth, that he's ruling over all things. Everything's under his authority. And so we ourselves should submit, submit to that very thing. He says, because God is so great and awesome He's not limited to locality, dwelling in a temple made with hands. Again, he's, the Bible says the earth is his footstool, that he spans the universe with his hand. We can't limit God to locality, nor can we limit God to our own little human reasoning. God is who we make him up to be as we create him according to our own hands and our own designs. <laughs> people may have a concept of God, but many of people's concepts of God is a wrong concept. God is who he is. He's the one true and living God. And Paul says, going on, verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though this God, our God, he says, needed anything. So he represents God as self-sufficient, the self-existent God, the God who needs absolutely nothing. God is not worshipped, ultimately, he says, by the things that we give and offer and provide with our hands because God has always been, and God honestly needs nothing from man. He wants to give everything to man. God created us for himself. Now, this is an important truth to remember, folks. God is not needy. He's not dependent upon humanity. It says, as though God needed anything. 
Now, it's hard to watch some versions of Christian television and not think that God doesn't need some stuff. But the Bible says God doesn't need anything. The psalmist says that God declares, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you because the world is mine. Now, why did that preacher tell me that, though? But God says, I wouldn't tell you. He might have told you that. But God says, the world is mine. Everything in it, it all belongs to me. I don't need anything. It's a privilege for us to give our hearts and give of ourselves to God, but that's a privilege. We're honestly only giving back to him what belongs to him. But God needs nothing from us ultimately, and we need to remember that very reality. More than that, he says God is the powerful supplier of all things. He says he's the one that gives to all life and breath and all things. God's given everything to us. He sustains everything. He says he gives to all breath. That is the capability to stay alive. How many times have you thought about breathing since the Bible study started? Good thing it wasn't up to us, right? How many times do you think about keeping your heart beating? Our very life is in the hands of God. God gives to all life. Anything that came into existence came because God brought it into existence. God brought it to life. God brought you to life. God brought anything that's alive to life. God brings things to life and God keeps things alive. And how important that we live in a reverent understanding. Therefore, Lord, my life truly is in your hands. Every breath, every moment, it is in your hands and under your authority. And more than that, verse 26, he says, and God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. That God's an impartial creator, Paul's saying. He's an impartial creator who loves every nationality in the world. He has brought onto this planet, says, everyone ultimately from one original bloodline, Adams. From God's perspective, folks, listen, despite the value of our diversities, there's really only from God's perspective one race. It's called the human race. There may be diversity, but God loves every nation, nationality, and ethnic race the same as every other, and there is no superior nation, race of people that exists. God loves all equally, and he cares about reaching all equally, and that interconnection that we have is the human race. Knowing from God's perspective that and our interconnection, that should help us to value people properly and to never allow prejudice in our hearts. But to realize there is from one blood the human race that God created and that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son for because he wants to reach all men on the face of the earth. And that's why verse 26 and 27 concludes with saying this, and he has therefore determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they might seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Take notice what Paul does here. He speaks of how God purposely determined the exact time period and the actual location and boundaries of where we would be born and live and exist on this ball of dirt for a primary driving reason in hope that all of those things would contribute to us reaching out and finding God ourselves personally. He says, God's determined our pre-appointed times. That is the exact time God allowed you to be born in the generation you were born in because God knew that is the best possible chance that she'll find me. 
God let you be born and live and go through the different times and experiences and let things happen in your life at the very time that they did because God knew if this happens at just that time because I'm doing all these things with that person since they've been created and knit together, that will be the perfect way at the right time they'll finally reach out for me and they'll find me. Even the boundaries of our dwellings and where we live, the places where God has us at different time periods, all of that God's coordinating, your life experiences, everything you went through, the good things and even the really bad things, God said, but all of those things, I'll coordinate it all for one purpose because then maybe they'll get to a place where they'll reach out, even grope or grasp for me blindly. God, if you exist, I need you in my life. And he says, God coordinates all these things because his heart is to reach people. And it's not even hard to find God because he says, even if we reach blindly, we'll be found by him. And it says, we'll find him though he's not far from each one of us. God's available. He's ever present. The point is he is waiting for us to reach out to him. Look, perhaps in your life, the Lord's allowed what he has in your life maybe to coordinate everything for your personal benefit that you would find God. Because that's what you're searching for. And that's what you need above all else. God wants to bring people from just being like these people, religious, where they go through religious routines and they follow rituals and sets of rules to having a genuine relationship with a living God who created them and loves them and wants to be involved in their life. Look how amazing to consider all that's transpired in your life. What if God was using all of those things out of his love and his wisdom superintending saying, I can coordinate all those things because it will bring you to a place where finally you will reach out to me and find me. Find what you need. Find what you're looking for. Amazing what God has done. Shall we?